Greetings and welcome to episode number 12 of Unrelated Things. Thanks to all the first-time listeners out there for tuning in for your first time to Unrelated Things. And thanks to any repeat listeners out there for coming back for more. If you like what you hear, you can go on iTunes and rate Unrelated Things. And if you don't, you can do the same. Give some feedback. You can make a donation or find out more about Unrelated Things at unrelatedthings.net. You can provide feedback at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. And you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. On to the meditation and mediation. My top pick for episode number 12 is the PS3. Yes, the PS3. Not the PS4 that just came out this week, but the PS3, which I just bought a couple of weeks ago. And when I bought the PS3 a couple of weeks ago, I knew full well that the PS4 was coming out very soon. But I didn't want to spend the money on the newest version and wanted to take advantage of the dropping prices on the PS3. I haven't had a gaming console. Well, I've had a gaming console, but haven't used a gaming console in a while. I've had a Wii for quite a while. Um, Probably a year after the Wii came out, we picked one up. It was very enjoyable. The gameplay was fun. Um, But I haven't played with the Wii in quite some time and was getting a bit jealous hearing some of the podcasts I listen to talk about some great games like uh, Skyrim, Bioshock Infinite, The Last of Us, and one of my favorite uh, franchises, Tomb Raider. I have played all the previous Tomb Raider games and the previous Tomb Raider, uh, Tomb Raider Underworld, did come out on the Wii. But the most recent version of Tomb Raider did not. So it is one that I definitely look forward to playing. Since I picked up the PS3, I have been playing uh, some demos from the uh, PlayStation Network store. And I found a very compelling one today called Papo and Yo. So anybody who's uh, had these consoles for a while may be familiar with this game. It's not a brand new game. But... Both the overarching theme of the game and the gameplay I found to be pretty compelling. Here's a little write-up of Papo and Yo um, from a site online. Papo and Yo is the story of a young boy, Kiko, and his best friend, Monster. 
Monster is a huge beast with razor-sharp teeth, but that doesn't scare Kiko away from playing with him. That said, Monster does have a very dangerous problem, an addiction to poisonous frogs. The minute he sees one hop by, he'll scarf it down and fly into a violent, frog-induced rage where no one, including Kiko, is safe. And yet, Kiko loves his monster and wants to save him. As Kiko, players will build their friendship with Monster by solving puzzles together and adventuring through a magical, surrealist world. Players will need to learn to use Monster's emotions, both good and bad, to their advantage if they want to complete their search for a cure and save their pal. So there's two things that really struck me about this uh, demo of this game. Um, one was the dedication at the beginning of the game. Um, was to the game maker's family, and in that dedication, he he dedicated it to his family for having to put up with the monster that was their father. So there is this real connection to the experience that this game player and his family, he his or her family. Um, experienced when they were growing up. So that, that that was turned into a game that, at least in the demo, has this high quality uh, is, is pretty amazing. In addition to that aspect of the game, the gameplay is, is pretty fantastic. Um, you travel around on the streets and on the rooftops of a a city and interact with drawings on the wall that make the buildings move in fascinating ways. Stairs appear, walls disappear, whole buildings move. You actually, by interacting with, with small boxes, basically at your feet, picking them up and moving them, you pick up and move giant buildings that are in front of you. So the the gameplay is is very unique and the the art quality is quite good and the underlying topic just it, it just makes for a really really fascinating package. So I really look forward to playing Papo and Yo. And I will uh, make additional comments as I go through the game, if anything strikes me. All right, cool. There are some good reasons to, to suspend a student from school, but the reason in this next story is not even remotely close to being one of those good reasons. A 13-year-old Kansas student was suspended from school reportedly because he was wearing a Vera Bradley purse. The school notified his mother, Leslie Willis, who had come to pick up her son, and she quotes, I was a little furious and I called the school to verify the story, and yeah, he refused to take off his Vera Bradley bag. Nothing more to it. And if that's the really nothing more to this story than what is in the story. This is absolutely, positively appalling. 
Um, the story, this story, as I read it, may not reveal the entire picture, but the way that it's laid out here, crazy, crazy and appalling reason to suspend someone from school. His friends and family have been very supportive of his right to wear the bag. Uh, his mother claims there is no mention of purses in the student handbook. And as an act of support, two stores that sell Vera Bradley purses have offered products to Skylar and the Vera Bradley company released the following statement. Vera Bradley creates products that allow all of us to express our individual style. We encourage self-expression through color and design. The school district has mailed Willis a formal notification of the, the disciplinary action. And Willis said she was told that the suspension wouldn't be lifted until Skylar stops wearing the purse, which he says he will not do. Are you kidding me? Not kidding you, but I have the same response to that story. It is inane and terrible well said. On to a story from Salon.com by Paul Buchite. And the story is titled Five Depressing Ways the 1% is Strangling the U.S. Economy. And I'm going to read you the three of those five ways here. One, income re redistribution is worse than usually reported. We are told that the richest 1% doubled its share of income in the past 30 years, but from 1980 to 2006, according to both IRS and Congressional Budget Office figures, they nearly tripled their share of income, and that's after tax income. After 2006, the recession set everyone back temporarily, but in the first two years of the recovery, the richest 1% captured an incomprehensible 121% of the income gains. So if the richest 1% is getting 121% of the gains, that means the vast majority of people are getting negative results. They are not ha having any gains whatsoever in the recovery. Item number two, wealth redistribution is even worse than income redistribution. In 1983, the poorest 47% of America owned about 2.5% of the nation's wealth. In 2009, the poorest 47% of America owned 0% of the nation's wealth. The poorest 47% of America, half of America, has debt that exceeds their assets. Item number three... The redistribution of productivity. From 2001 to 2011, total corporate profits more than doubled to almost $2 trillion, while the corporate federal income tax rate was cut in half. Incomes for 99% of Americans have declined since the recession, with the median household income dropping by 7.3%. Low-income jobs made up one-fifth of the jobs lost to the recession, but accounted for three-fifths of the jobs regained during the recovery. So there was a big redistribution in the recession, and it was a redistribution of wealth from the vast majority 
of people to the wealthiest people. So those are three of the five depressing ways the 1% is strangling the U.S. economy. And that's just yeah. the way it is. Oh, boy, howdy. Amazon Instant Video for iOS has been updated with AirPlay support and IMDB integration. Just a really quick story here. Uh, if you have Amazon, Amazon Instant Video, which is part of, well, you can get Amazon Instant Video either part of or separate from Amazon Prime. If you're an Amazon Prime subscriber for in the neighborhood of $80 a year, you will get uh, two benefits. You will get um, free shipping on many items, not every item, but many items uh, for two-day shipping. And you will get a subsection of Amazon Instant Video also as part of the package. I almost said also for free, but if you're paying $80 a year, then it's not for free. But it is part of the same package. $80 a year sounds pretty steep, but when you break it down to the monthly cost, it's not all that bad and compares favorably to services like Netflix. Amazon has updated its instant video app on iOS to version 2.1. The most notable addition is AirPlay support, which has been a long requested feature. So now anybody playing uh, their Amazon Instant Video back on their iPad or iPhone can, with AirPlay, um, beam that feed directly to their television, or maybe not, maybe indirectly to their television, or directly to their Apple TV, which is connected to their television, which will then show up on the big screen. Uh, big addition for this iOS app, long-awaited addition. People have been looking for. I think you just nailed it. This has been talked about quite a lot since the debut of the new iPhones by Apple, the 5S and the 5C. And this is a little story by Chris Hauk, H-A-U-K, on MacTrast.com. A recent survey of those who purchased their latest models of Apple's popular iPhone handsets showed the iPhone 5S is outselling the iPhone 5C by over 2 to 1. A quote from All Things D. In September, Apple launched a pair of new iPhones, the flagship iPhone 5S and the mid-tier iPhone 5C. And a new analysis by Consumer Intelligence Research Partners shows that the higher-end 5S has been outselling the lower-priced 5C. Back to the story. Among those who purchased Apple's latest iPhones during the last days of September, the 5S accounted for 64% of total iPhone sales, the 5C accounted for 27%, and the iPhone 4S took the remaining 9% of iPhone sales. Some outlets have been reporting this like this is surprising and unusual news that the 5C is being out sold by the 5S at a rate of about 2 to 1. I don't understand why they're surprised. Yes, the 5C is a new form factor, but it's a new form factor of the last generation phone. It is 
the internals of the iPhone 5 repackaged and with some with some slight updates when sold alongside the brand new all new internals iPhone 5s it's no surprise to me that the 5s would outsell the 5c by 2 to 1 and the story goes on despite its colorful new design the iPhone 5c is only selling a little bit better than last year's iPhone 4s which then held the spot as Apple's $99 phone, grabbing 27% of sales, the 5C does, compared to the iPhone 4S's 23%. So the iPhone 4S, the iPhone 5C is selling better than the previous older generation um, phone when the new iPhone 5 came out. Um, and that, I think, should be expected because of the newer form factor. Um, I would expect there to be heightened interest, and it's just not, again, last year's model, but it is last year's internals, essentially, in a brand-new candy-coated shell. They didn't have the guts. Someone who, who maybe didn't have the guts was Apple's IT department, um, the, uh, other day, let's see, maybe this was yesterday, um, the point of sale system for Apple stores went down, which is a nightmare. I work in the retail industry, um, for a major retailer and having the entire nationwide or global system of POS go down is absolutely a nightmare. This story is from Griffin Kupal in today's iPhone.com. If you've gone into an Apple store today and attempted to make a purchase or pick up an order from online, you may have experienced a little trouble during the checkout process. But don't worry, it wasn't just you. According to reports, Apple's point-of-sale systems in stores nationwide crashed, leaving the stores unable to ring up customers and left customers unable to purchase their products. The system was apparently down for about two hours, and one report claims that the report wasn't just limited to the United States, but may have been an international outage of the system. According to Apple Insider, the glitch may have cost Apple as much as $25 million, as each store reportedly earned around $50,000 per hour, and there are 253 stores located in the United States. So that uh, dollar amount seems to be only based on the U.S. stores. So depending on how widespread the outage was, um, it could have been higher. However, it, the, the, the $25 million figure certainly wasn't dollars lost. Anyone who couldn't buy an item instantly likely would have returned at another time to purchase an item. In addition to that, stores were resorting to pen and paper. And you remember, maybe if you're Old enough, you remember those uh, sliding um, credit card machines that take the imprints of the cards. Um, they were resorting to those to continue to make purchases or continue to allow purchases in many cases. The system came back up uh, before too long. There was one report I saw of a secondary um, outage, but 
all seems to be well at this point with Black Friday coming up in a couple of weeks. This is at least better to have happened now than then, but absolutely something that people in the retail industry fear. I don't even know where to start. Speaking of the retail industry, um, we are looking forward to this year, Black Thursday. Best Buy is the latest retailer to open up earlier on Thanksgiving Day this year. The Minneapolis-based electronics chain will open at 6 p.m. nationwide on November 28, much earlier than last year's midnight openings. Kohl's said that they will open its doors at 8 p.m. on Thanksgiving and remain open all day Friday. And this piece from Consumerist. Just in case you hate your family so much that you can't wait until 8 p.m. on Thanksgiving to pretend that shopping at Macy's, JCPenney, or Sears is more important than spending the holidays with your, quote, loved ones, Kmart, the store you used to buy socks at before Walmart opened in your area, has decided to open at 6 a.m. on Thanksgiving to give you shelter from the nagging questions about your job, love life, hair, friends, and why you never call. Uh, a note on the Kmart piece, the Kmart in my area has been open throughout Thanksgiving Day at least for the last two years um, because I often stop there on my way home from my Thanksgiving festivities. So it, it's definitely no, no longer uh, Black Thursday. In the post-recession retail landscape, competition for the consumer's cash is killing Black Friday, the traditional day after Thanksgiving holiday. This year, Black Friday will be celebrated on Thursday as retailers are always flocking to open earlier than the competition. It's about getting that customer in your door before they can go into your neighbor's door. About seven, seven or eight years ago, um, people decided that uh, we needed midnight madness and have midnight store openings to capture that customer early. Um, this was shifting from, from what was commonly a 5 or 6 a.m. opening previous to that. Ever since that time, the, the time has just been creeping earlier and earlier. Midnight turned into 11. Hey, if all our neighbors are opening at midnight, let's open at 11. All these people standing in line can come and shop at us first. We'll get their wallets when they're full. Then they can move on to the other stores. And 11 became 10, which became 8, became 6. I think 6 p.m. is going to be the most common time for retailers to open this year. Um, one uh, such retailer I've heard um, various reports about is Apple. Initially, there was a report that many Apple stores would open on Thanksgiving Day and um, at, at various times during the day. But since that report came out, it's been mostly retracted with Tim Cook stating that it is very important for the retail employees for Apple to be able to spend time with their families on Thanksgiving and that Apple would mostly avoid the trend of opening earlier and earlier and being open well into Thanksgiving Day. 
though they do, will have select locations that generally have expanded hours anyway, including the Fifth Avenue New York City location, which is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, so there will be a number of locations that will be open on Thanksgiving, but it will not be a widespread, uh, you know, company-wide decision that all stores will be open on Thanksgiving. Um, stores in malls, which most of Apple stores are in malls, will likely be following the hours that are set by those malls. So a little, a little pushback from uh, Tim Cook on opening on Thanksgiving Day for quote-unquote Black Friday. One of the biggest yeah. deals ever in the history of ever. They do have good deals. Uh, here's a, 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 let me do this. If I can't find it, I can't find it. So if I can't find it. Because TV is so good. So a little bit of Eureka Connected news. There's a new show uh, coming to the Geek and Sundry channel, which is was established by Felicia Day um, and is available on YouTube. And there's a new series called Caper. And Caper is produced and put together by Amy Berg and Mike Sizemore. Amy Berg is the Eureka Connection here. Amy Berg is a, a writer, and she wrote on Eureka as well as many other um, popular shows and she is someone that I've followed uh, since becoming aware of her watching Eureka and someone I follow on Twitter at Bergopolis. So here's a little write-up from Boomtron writer Brody Gibson. Geek and Sundry YouTube channel is going to be the future home of a new web series from Amy Berg and Mike Sizemore called Caper. The web series will reunite Berg with Leverage star Beth Risegraff, who will be playing one of the four superheroes who, according to THR, are, which I think is the Hollywood Reporter, are forced to consider a life of crime in order to fund their crime-fighting lifestyles. Not everyone can be as rich as Bruce Wayne or Tony Stark. Am I right? At some point, you have to wonder how these superheroes all make ends meet when they spend the majority of their funds on costumes and gadgets. How do they pay their rent and purchase groceries? This is exactly the kind of poke funnery this type of genre needs. And I can't wait to see how it affects their actual crime fighting. How do you stop a criminal when you yourself are guilty of crime committing. The cast so far includes, on top of Risegraf, Glee's Harry Shum Jr., Justified's Abby Miller, and Glory Days' Hartley Sawyer. Donald Murphy will direct the series. It is said to be a fun and colorful comedy about friendship, community, and what it takes to be a hero. By saying stuff like this, you're setting yourself up. But let's kind of get all that fun, quirky stuff out of there. All right, let's shift gears a little and get some of that fun, quirky stuff out of there. We'll have some more fun and quirky stuff coming up 
later. I recently moved to New Jersey within the last uh, several months uh, for work, so I now work in New Jersey, and there was an incident here recently um, in one of the large malls nearby. This is a mall I pass every day on my way to work and that I've shopped in on a couple of occasions. Um, this uh, story is by Aaron McClam of US News. NBCnews.com. There was a gunman who entered the Garden State Plaza. The gunman was wearing all black and a helmet when he walked the mall, Garden State Plaza, in Paramus, New Jersey, one of the busiest in the United States, and began firing, authorities and witnesses said. Thousands of shoppers were in the mall just before closing time Monday night, and hundreds of shoppers were locked into stores during the chaos. The gunman, identified by authorities as Richard Shoup, age 20, fired six shots at the mall before taking his own life. Authorities found his body after 3 a.m. Tuesday at a section of the mall under construction. So this gentleman entered the mall before closing time, which is probably uh, 9, 9 or 10 p.m., on Monday night, they didn't locate him in the mall until 3 a.m. Tuesday morning. Nobody was injured aside from the shooter who took his own life. The six rounds hit an elevator, an escalator, and several storefronts. So what, what really had the potential to turn into another one of these, you know, major major mall shooting incidents, which it was a major sh major shooting incident, but one in which no no lives and, and, uh, and no injuries were resulted, um, but the potential and the risk was significant. Um, the, in this particular story, I think one of the um, most well-spoken people quoted here, and there are only a couple people quoted here, was actually the New Jersey governor. Quote, we need to get at these root causes, he said, and it is not the sexiest thing in the world to talk about to be more aggressive in the mental health area. Everybody likes to brandish guns and put them on tables and say, we're going to ban this or ban that. What we really need to get to is every one of these incidents involved a deeply disturbed person who was not getting treatment. We need to get to that. If we get to that, we have a better chance of preventing some of these incidents. I'm going to move on now. Another story from Apple News. Um, after being contacted by a third-party iPhone repair and modification company that was having an issue getting a replacement Touch ID sensor working on a new iPhone 5S, 
iMore, which is a website that covers Apple News, very well done website, did some testing. They discovered that each Touch ID sensor, though appearing identical on the outside, will only work with the phone it came with from the factory, suggesting an additional security layer that Apple had decided to not previously disclose. So this is very interesting and, and does add some security, makes it harder to spoof the phone with some other touch ID sensor um, by marrying that piece of hardware, that, that hardware ID touch ID sensor to that specific phone and not letting it be used with others or others be used with it. So um, uh, interesting um, bit of tech that is part of the Touch ID sensor and the iPhone 5S that had not been previously disclosed. Sometimes stuff happens. Sometimes stuff happens. And what the FHFA wants to happen is they want to find the Bank of America more than $6 billion. This is a story from the Huffington Post by Richa Naidu. U.S. housing regulators are looking to find the Bank of America more than $6 billion for its role in misleading mortgage agencies during the housing boom, compared with the $4 billion to be paid by J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, which I'll talk about some more later. The Financial Times said the Federal Housing Finance Agency, FHFA, is pursuing claims on behalf of finance agencies Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that back about half of the existing U.S. home loans. Countrywide Financial Corp., the mortgage lender acquired by Bank of America in July 2008, has cost the bank more than $40 billion in litigation expenses and other charges linked to its bad some subprime mortgages. So a fine heading to, or a potential fine heading to Bank of America for their uh, illegal or at least against the rules um, or misleading work that they did. And the, the banks were one of the major reasons why the country slipped into recession and why so many homes have been foreclosed upon or are in the process or are being sold as short sales at less than the total of the mortgages that are on those homes and really have devastated the middle class, um, especially in, in certain areas. Devastation is exactly the right word. Uh, there may be some areas where the effects were not so widespread and so and felt by so many individuals. It's horrid. It's just bad. It sure is. And this isn't deja vu. Because TV is so good. Another previous Eureka uh, showrunner, director, creator, 
um, is uh, moving on to one of his new projects as well. Um, a story from m.deadline.com by Nelly Andreva. Fox buys Romeo and Juliet drag racing drama from Jamie Paglia and Marcus Wiley. Jamie Paglia was one of the co-creators of Eureka um, and was very, very involved with that show throughout its entire run. He co-created Eureka with um, Cosby, and I, uh, I don't know why Mr. Cosby, and it's not Bill, uh, and that's probably why um, Andy, Andy Cosby's uh, first name was eluding me there. Um, so in this story, one of the new projects that Jamie Paglia is working on. In a competitive situation, Fox has bought a drama pitch from Eureka co-creator Jamie Paglia and former Fox comedy executive-turned-producer Marcus Wiley through Wiley's first-look deal at the network. Based on an idea by Paglia and his producing partner, James Middleton, Pomona Kings is the saga of two rival families, one white and one Latino, who vie for power and prestige in the world of custom car shops and drag racing in Southern California. Told through the star-crossed romance of the prodigal son and drag racing daughter of the warring family patriarchs, they must navigate a world of rival gangs, car theft rings, gambling, and corruption to escape their humble beginnings and make a future of their own. Paglia Middleton and Wiley executive produce. So a one of the shows that Jamie Paglia is working on, and um, the one that seems uh, a bit less sci-fi connected. Um, there is another series that I know Jamie Paglia has been working on as well, based on some British novels. Um, it, which I haven't read, and which are, so, uh, I don't know that they're post-apocalyptic, but they are related to some type of epidemic that has a major impact on the population. So hopefully we'll see a lot more from Jamie Paglia. And once these projects get off the ground, hopefully we'll see Jamie Paglia and Amy Berg and many others uh, team up for season six of Eureka, or the Eureka movie, or or some some further episode or further uh, piece of the Eureka universe would be nice. I've never heard dumber dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in a story in thestar.com by Ravina Olak, we get a little peek into the working conditions of the people who make the products that we buy. And the title of this piece is called, I Get Hired at a Bangladesh Sweatshop, Meet My Nine-Year-Old Boss. From Dhaka, Bangladesh. Some days are good for meme. Others, she likes to forget as quickly as possible. The first time I saw meme was when, was also my first day at work at a sweatshop. She was having a good day despite the wretched heat. 
she sat cross-legged on the concrete floor, a tiny, frail figure among piles of collars, cuffs, and other parts of unstitched shirts. She had a pair of cutters in her hands, much like eyebrow tweezers, and she was trimming threads from a navy collar. She cleared one collar after another of threads until the big pile, which had been bigger than her, was no more. It took her all morning, and she didn't look up much, did not join in any conversation. When it was done, she took a few gulps of water from a scrunched bottle, walked around for a bit, her little hands rubbing her back, and went back to trimming threads, this time from navy cuffs. She did that from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., except for an hour-long lunch break. Later, she said, it had been a good day. The electricity didn't play hooky, which meant the three ceiling fans worked all day, and so it wasn't oppressively hot. She had fish curry for lunch, and the floor manager didn't yell at her for humming too loudly. It was a very good day, she said again, dancing a little jig. Meme is nine years old and works as a sewing helper in a garment factory. For a few days this summer, she was also my boss. So this is a pretty good story um, about Meme and about this writer's experience in working for a very short time in a garment factory in Bangladesh. So again, it is by Ravina Olak, A-U-L-A-K-H, on thestar.com, called I Got Hired at a Bangladesh Sweatshop. Meet my nine-year-old boss. And now you're supposed to just go ahead and move on. Let's go ahead and move on, and let's touch back again on a topic mentioned previously. J.P. Morgan chief executive is so damn proud, in quotes, of the bank that he runs that is set to be fined $13 billion. This is from a story on TheGuardian.com. The embattled J.P. Morgan chairman and chief executive, Jamie Dimon, said on Monday the bank was attempting to put its problems behind it as prosecutors weighed a record $13 billion fine. Demond reached a tentative deal this weekend with the Justice Department to end a number of civil investigations into its sale of mortgage securities before the 2008 financial crisis. The deal is not thought to end a potentially more serious criminal probe into the U.S.'s largest bank and its executives. I am so damn proud of this company. That's what I think about when I wake up every day, Demond told CNBC. 260,000 people around the world are doing a great job for our clients. We're gaining market share. We're doing great stuff. We're trying to get our problems behind us. The deal with the Justice Department comes amid a series of investigations into the bank in the U.S., U.K., and China. The Justice Department deal is thought to include a $4 billion payment to settle claims that the bank misled lending giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac about the quality of mortgage-backed securities it sold to them before the 2008 crash. Another $4 billion would be paid in consumer relief and $5 billion in penalties. Something to be so damn proud of. It's a sign of the end times. And if that's not, some of you might think that this is. 
Larry Flint urges clemency for Joseph Paul Franklin, the killer who shot him. Larry Flint's decision to speak up over Franklin's execution comes nearly 35 years after the gunman's actions put him in a wheelchair. Though never convicted for shooting Flint, Franklin confessed to the 1978 assassination attempt outside a Florida courthouse years after his rampage was ended by arrest for other crimes in 1980. Now, Larry Flint at the time was uh, pretty well known and, and unpopular in many, many, many circles um, because he was the publisher of Hustler. He was actually jailed for six months for desecration of the flag after wearing the Stars and Stripes as a nappy. This must be from a British uh, British source, and it is from theguardian.com. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why people disliked Larry Flint. But in his confession, Franklin explained that he had shot Flint because Hustler had published a spread featuring an interracial couple. Flint, Larry Flint said his feelings about capital punishment began to crystallize after he was shot. Quote, I have been private about the death penalty because I knew I'd feel like a voice in the wilderness. This nation is bent on executing people, and it's hard to get people who feel that way to be rational about anything. But you have to understand that most people are not after justice, but after vengeance. And vengeance is wrong. Whether uh, Mr. Flint has any impact or not, um, the, the execution of Mr. Franklin may be delayed after all. Continuing in the story, it is not yet clear that Franklin will actually be executed next month. Missouri is among several states that have exhausted their supplies of the substances used in the triple drug cocktail executions. Fresenius Kabi, the German manufacturer of the anesthetic propofol used as a single drug substitute, is demanding the return of all supplies. Last week, Missouri prison officials said they would return a shipment of propofol nearly a year after the distributor issued an urgent request. However, the officials said they still had a supply of the drug but did not clarify if there are sufficient quantities for two upcoming executions, including Franklin's. States running low on execution supplies say they are increasingly turning to independent pharmacists to compound the drugs, opening the way for legal challenges that amount to the head-spinning argument that the drugs used for execution may not be safe for human use. Oh my gosh. Unrelated thing. Here's a story I saw on Consumerist by Chris Moran. Maybe you can't father children because you're eating too much bacon. In a new study titled, quote, Meat Intake and Semen Parameters Among Men Attending a Fertility Clinic, unquote, published in the German, the Journal of Fertility and Sterility. Researchers from Harvard investigated a possible link between the consum consumption of various forms of meat and 
semen quality. They looked at 364 semen samples from 156 men. These subjects had come to the Massachusetts General Hospital Fertility Center with their female partners to be evaluated for possible fertility problems. The result? Processed meat intake was associated with lower percent morphologically normal sperm, while white meat fish intake was associated with higher percent morphologically normal sperm. Dark meat fish intake was related to higher total sperm count. More precisely, men who ate the most processed meat between 0.39 and 2.79 servings per day had 1.4% fewer sperm that were of a size and shape of normal size compared to men who ate less processed meat. Abnormal sperm morphology is believed to negatively impact the odds of fertility. So if you are trying to father children, you just may need to lay off the bacon and bologna. That has nothing to do with this story. I'm giving you information that you're going to think is important, but it's not at all. It, uh, it doesn't really have anything to do with this story. However, the company mentioned in the story does sell some of that processed meat. And this story is from TheAtlanticWire.com with some other sources as well. Instead of raises, McDonald's tells workers to sign up for food stamps. McDonald's has taken a lot of heat lately for the subpar wages it pays its employees, but the company does encourage its workers to find an alternate source of income. Federal assistance. Fast food worker advocacy group has a recording of a phone call made by a worker to the McDonald's employee helpline called McResources. The operator more or less told Nancy Salgado on McDonald's a McDonald's employee for 10 years that signing her and her children up for food stamps should be no problem. Quote, you would most likely be eligible for SNAP benefits, the operator says. You know it's a federal program. The federal money comes down to the states and the states administer it, the operator adds, making it crystal clear that Salgado would be taking federal money. Not paying your workers enough and then directing them to federal programs like food stamps is apparently one of the ways that McDonald's inflates its hefty profits. And that's what it comes down to is hefty profits. I don't fault the operator for instructing this worker that is not earning enough money, that there may be a resource for her to fill in the gap. I think that's actually a, a, a laudable thing. I think the horrendous piece of it is the piece that uh, McDonald's and other companies are not paying their employees wages that will prevent them from having to seek assistance in those ways. And there's two more pieces of this uh, story as well, because there are some numbers related to it. Um, this piece, this part is from the Huffington Post. Taxpayers are shelling out $1.2 billion a year to help pay workers at McDonald's, according to an estimate from the National Employment Law Project, published Tuesday. The organization used estimated figures from a study by University of California, Berkeley, and the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign on how many fast food workers rely on public assistance programs like food stamps and Medicaid for its analysis. Overall, low wages at the top 10 largest fast food chains cost taxpayers about $3.8 billion per year. 
Quote, a very easy policy fix here would be to raise the minimum wage, said Sylvia Allegretto, the co-chair of Berkeley Center on Wage and Employment Dynamics. The firms that pay a large share of their workers at or near the minimum wage, these workers disproportionately have to rely on public subsidies. And who else is implicated besides McDonald's? The All of the really well-known fast food brands um, are in the top 10. Uh, aside from McDonald's $1.2 billion estimate, Yum Brands, which includes Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and KFC, $648 million. Subway, $436 million. Burger King, $356 million. Wendy's, Dunkin' Donuts, Dairy Queen, Little Caesars, Sonic Domino's, all names that you have heard before. As McDonald's own suggested employee budgets indicate, it is not easy to support yourself or a family on just a job behind the counter of a fast food restaurant. And a new study claims that 52% of non-management fast food workers who take home some sort of federal subsidy are costing taxpayers around $4 billion a year. The overwhelming share of jobs in the fast food industry pay low wages that force millions of workers to rely on public assistance in order to afford health care, food, and other basic necessities, reads the report. So I think not, not a surprise. I think the only part that's surprising at all is where some of those numbers fall. Our children will never know what that's like. I, we hope that our children will never know what that's like, but unfortunately with the way that our economy has been moving, that just might not be the case. They might just eventually have to turn to a life of crime to support themselves, as these people have done in California. Authorities in California are looking for the thieves who may not with 140,000 pounds of walnuts in the latest great food theft story. I talked about some food thefts uh, back on one of the earlier episodes. The theft, estimated at nearly $400,000, occurred Sunday in the small town of Escalon. Investigators say it was one of the biggest to hit the booming industry. Last month, about 12,000 pounds of walnuts were stolen from a trailer parked on a highway. This time, several truckloads of walnuts were taken from the facility. Authorities say rising prices, about $2.50 per pound, is what appears to be driving the recent walnut thefts. No arrests have yet been made. If you want a sign that humanity's still got it going on, that wasn't it. I enjoy it when uh, people and things that I'm interested in that seem to be completely separate and unrelated connect. Um, I, I just find it fun to find that one entity that I'm interested in or that I'm following has an interest in a separate entity that I'm following. And that brings me to this particular story. And this story is from GigaOM.com. And GigaOM is a, a 
site that follows the tech industry and it follows Apple as well as lots of other aspects of the tech industry. And this story is from Jeff John Roberts on GigaOM.com. Musicians' anger at Spotify is like protesting the Sony Walkman. Musician, musicians, musicians who blame digital music services for declining income are lashing out at the wrong target, according to folk singer Billy Bragg. Billy Bragg is one of my favorite performers and one of the last people that I would have expected to see trigger this kind of story on a site like GigaOM. So thank you, Jeff John Roberts, for having your great taste in music. In a Facebook post last week, Bragg suggests that an outdated music model and not technology explains low payment rates. Quote, railing against Spotify is about as helpful to their cause as campaigning against the Sony Walkman would have been in the early 80s. Music fans are increasingly streaming their music and as artists, we have to adapt ourselves to their behavior rather than try to hold the line on a particular mode of listening to music. And I really should have tried that in my British accent. If you're a fan of Billy Bragg, you know that sometimes uh, that accent gets very thick and uh, it is a challenge for my ears to always understand. Bragg also takes issue with analog era record deals that have carried over to the digital era. He notes that such deals which give the lion's share of revenue to music labels no longer makes sense in the digital context where labels don't do any of the distribution or other heavy lifting that once justified their cut of the proceeds. These observations by Bragg, whose music incidentally celebrates fair wages and the working class, are a welcome dose of common sense at a time when other musicians have been treating the likes of Pandora and Spotify as scapegoats, even though the streaming companies pay higher royalty rates than traditional radio stations to reach fewer customers. For now, it makes more sense to focus on the role of the middlemen and to reconceive the industry's business model at a time when movies and music are disappearing as a physical product. Mark my words. Netflix tops HBO and paid U.S. subscribers as members stream 5 billion hours of content in Q3. This story is by Rip Empson of TechCrunch.com. Today, Netflix posted its third quarter earnings, with the streaming video provider exceeding analyst projections thanks to strong subscriber growth, in which it added 1.3 million domestically. Netflix CEO Reed Hastings and CFO David Wells said in a letter to shareholders this afternoon the company recently surpassed the 40 million members milestone, up from less than 30 million just one year ago. This is transforming the video media environment that's out there. It's, it's really great to see someone make, or a company, make these types of inroads into the old model of distribution of video content. So between Netflix and YouTube and Amazon and some other players and iTunes, uh, 
it is now easier to break away from the old model of video distribution and television. Back to the story, that's the not the only milestone Netflix checked off in the third quarter. In an earnings interview this afternoon, Hastings said that the company served up over 5 billion hours of streaming video content over the last three months. Netflix leadership last shared streaming numbers in April when CEO announced via Facebook that members had watched more than 4 billion hours of video during the first quarter of 2013. Netflix is on a mission to compete with HBO, which has long set the standard for excellence in original content, taking home 27 Emmy Awards this year to Netflix's three. While it still has a long way to go in the award department, Netflix has reportedly surpassed HBO in another key area, paid domestic subscribers. According to Netflix's earnings report today, the company now has 29.9 million paying members, whereas Bloomberg reports that HBO has 28.7 million U.S. customers. So more customers for Netflix now than for HBO. That people watch it and then it's a thing. That's how it works. And here's the thing I talked about on an early episode with an update. Occupy Wall Street buys $15 million of Americans' medical debt. An Occupy Wall Street spinoff group has bought up $14.7 million worth of Americans' personal medical debt and forgiven it over the last year as part of its Rolling Jubilee project, the group announced on Monday. The Rolling Jubilee project, organized by Occupy Wall Street's Strike Debt Group has so far spent $400,000 to buy the debt, in the process relieving 2,693 people of the money they owed for medical services that Occupy thinks should be free. Think of it as a bailout of the 99% by the 99%, a post on the Rolling Jubilee Project's website said. The project, which launched on November 15, 2012, this is actually a year a year ago today, as I record, uh, raises money through fundraisers and small individual contributions, and then uses that money to purchase distressed and defaulted debt from the lenders, who in this case are hospitals or medical groups. The lenders are willing to sell it very cheaply, often for less than five cents on the dollar, because they think there is little chance they will be able to collect. Andrew Ross, a member of Occupy's Strike Debt Group and a professor at New York University, said the group was able to buy debt at a 50 to 1 ratio. The group receives almost no information about the people whose debt they buy. Only an address, Ross said. The group mails a letter to each address explaining the project and that the person's debt has been canceled. The group does not work directly with debtors. One person wrote back and said that he had gone through periods of being homeless and he was trying to get back on his feet, Ross said, calling the elimination of debt a huge relief. Ross said the group has 200000 left to spend and they hope to target student loan debt next. So this is a fantastic project that's arisen out of the Occupy movement. Um, I think it's, 
amazing and fantastic that this group exists and that they're doing this work. And I think it's absolutely horrendous that the need for this group to exist exists. Um, this is this is something that people shouldn't need to worry about. People shouldn't need to worry about going into so much debt to get medical service that they can't afford to pay their bills um, and shouldn't shouldn't be shouldn't need to be bailed out um, by anyone. So a, a great, fantastic group. Uh, go ahead and look up Rolling Jubilee and Strike Debt online. Um, and you can make a donation to Rolling Jubilee and help relieve someone of the debt that they are unable to pay. I'm not kidding you. So when I moved to New Jersey, I moved to New Jersey from Vermont, and uh, there are many things I miss about Vermont, and one of those things I miss is the best senator in the United States is from Vermont, and his name is Bernie Sanders. He's independent. He's not the only independent in Congress. There are one or two others, um, but he is, in my opinion, the best uh, senator in Congress right now. And um, Playboy had an interview of Bernie Sanders. The Playboy interview is a pretty famous interview. It goes into some pretty good depth um, on the subjects that it interviews. It's interviewed many, many world leaders. It's famously interviewed uh, Jimmy Carter. Um, and many other leaders as well. So they have recently interviewed Bernie Sanders, um, published on October 17, 2013. And here is one portion of that interview. Playboy. You have said, quote, there are people working three jobs and four jobs trying to cobble together an income in order to support their families. Has the middle class died forever? Sanders. Well, I certainly hope it's not forever, but one of the untold stories of our time is the collapse of the American middle class. From the end of World War II until 1973, we saw an expanding middle class with people's incomes going up. Since that point, and especially since the Wall Street-driven financial crisis, you've seen a real collapse. Since 1999, median family income has gone down $5,000. Real unemployment, counting people who have given up looking for work who, or who are working part-time when they want to work full-time, is more than 14%. More than 14%. You're seeing millions of people working longer hours for lower wages. When I was growing up in a lower-middle-class family, the gold standard for blue-collar workers was union manufacturing and the automobile industry. As the big three have been rehiring, they're hiring people at something like $14 an hour half the previous wages. The U.S. has 46 million people living in poverty today. We have the highest rate of childhood poverty in the industrialized world. Playboy, how do you explain that, Sanders? We live in a hyper-capitalist society, which means the function of every institution is not to perform a public service, but to make as much money 
as possible. And if you want to read the rest, go check that out, the Playboy interview with Bernie Sanders. This happened. A story from aljazeera.com. The Pakistani Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif has said peace cannot be achieved, quote, by unleashing senseless force. In his first public speech since a U.S. drone strike killed Taliban leader Hakimullah Massoud. Though Sharif did not mention Friday's drone strike directly, he stressed his desire to, quote, give peace a chance. Quote, my government is firmly resolved to bringing the cycle of bloodshed and violence to an end, he said on Monday. But it cannot be done overnight, nor can it be done by unleashing senseless force against our citizens without first taking every effort to bring the misguided and confused elements of society back to the mainstream. The killing of Massoud as government representatives prepared to meet his Tariq-e-Taliban-Pakistan faction triggered an angry response from Islamabad. The Interior Minister Shaudri Nizar accused Washington of sabotaging peace efforts with a drone strike. Sharif came to power in May partly on a pledge to hold talks to try to reach a settlement with the TTP. But it's this kind of stuff that drives me freaking crazy. That kind of stuff does drive me freaking crazy. But on another subject, I went to the movies and saw the film Prisoners. I don't have a big in-depth review here. I think it was a great film. It was really, really well acted. Um, And the really compelling moral questions were raised in the film. But there was just one scene that stood out to me. I swear at one point, Captain O'Malley called Detective Loki Gyllenhaal when he left the interrogation observation room. Detective Loki was played by Jake Gyllenhaal. And I haven't reheard it or seen it mentioned anywhere else, but I believe that the actor playing Captain O'Malley actually called Jake Gyllenhaal Gyllenhaal in the film. Maybe I'll find I've misheard that, but that is currently where I stand. Spoiler! Only a spoiler if you didn't know Jake Gyllenhaal was in that movie and you kind of find that out right at the beginning. Spoiler! All right. The creators of Myst have launched a $1.1 million Kickstarter to fund a new game. And this is also a story from GigaOM, who I mentioned earlier, sir, by Lo- mentioned earlier by Lauren Hawkinson. First-person adventure game Mist was an unlikely success story, developed by brothers Robin and Rand Miller. The unconventional storyline of the game and its reliance on the then cutting-edge CD-ROM seemed a bit too highbrow for conventional gamers, but instead the game was a huge success selling 6 million copies and remaining the top-selling PC game until The Sims in 2002. 20 years later, Rand Miller, along with his company Cyan, are working on the game's, quote, spiritual successor. 
and have launched a $1.1 million Kickstarter in order to make it happen. And just before sitting down to record this, I took a look at that Kickstarter, and they indeed um, were successful and raised over $1.3 million in donations to make the game. The proposed game called Abduction is a first-person adventure with many themes obviously similar to Myst. The player is dropped in a strange world with no information or backstory and left to his or her own devices to explore the environment. Running on Unreal Engine 4, which is responsible for the graphics found with big brand titles like Bioshock Infinite and Borderlands, Cyan promises to release the game by the end of 2015. Look at that. Look at that. And listen to this. Not sure if this is the best or worst name for a ski and snowboard bag. But here we go. This is from a site called blessthisstuff.com. Douchebags are an up-and-coming travel bag brand of Norway owned by professional free skier and alpine ski racer Jan Olsen. The douchebag featured here is a smart way to transport your skis, snowboards, and gear. It features an innovative length adjustment system allowing the bag to be easily adjusted to whatever size gear you are traveling with. The douchebag weighs in at only 3.4 kilograms and when not in use, rolls up neatly, making it compact for storage. The bag also features a practical shoulder carrying system and a hookup system for attaching other douchebag bags. Uh, yeah, that, that's a weird PSA. Yeah, that is weird. The Ocean is Broken by Greg Ray of theherald.com.au. It was the silence that made this voyage different from all of those before it. Not the absence of sound exactly. The wind still whipped the sails and whistled in the rigging. The waves still sloshed against the fiberglass hull. And there were plenty of other noises, muffled thuds and bumps and scrapes as the boat knocked against pieces of debris. What was missing was the cries of seabirds, which, on all previous similar voyages, had surrounded the boat. The birds were missing because the fish were missing. Exactly ten years before, when Newcastle yachtsman Ivan McFadden had sailed exactly the same course from Melbourne to Osaka, all he'd had to do to catch a fish from the ocean between Brisbane and Japan was throw out a baited line. Quote, There was not one of the 28 days on that portion of the trip when we didn't catch a good-sized fish to cook up and eat with some rice, McFadden recalled. But this time, on that whole long leg of sea journey, the total catch was two. No fish, no birds, hardly a sign of life at all. Quote, in years gone by, I'd gotten used to all the birds and their noises, he said. They'd be following the boat, sometimes resting on the mast before taking off again. You'd see flocks of them wheeling over the surface of the sea in the distance, feeding on pill shards. 
But in March and April this year, only silence and desolation surrounded the, his boat, Funnel Web, as it sped across the surface of a haunted ocean. North of the equator, up above New Guinea, the ocean racers saw a big fishing boat working a reef in the distance. All day it was there, trawling back and forth. It was a big ship, like a mothership, he said. And all night it worked, too, under bright floodlights. And in the morning, McFadden was awoken by his crewmen calling out urgently that the ship had launched a speedboat. Obviously, I was worried. We were unarmed, and pirates are a real worry in those waters. I thought, if these guys had weapons, then we're in deep trouble. But they weren't pirates, not in the conventional sense at least. The speedboat came alongside, and the Melanesian men aboard offered gifts of fruit and jars of jams and preserves. And they gave us five big sugar bags full of fish, he said. They were good fish, big fish of all kinds. Some were fresh, but others had obviously been in the sun for a while. We told them there was no way we could possibly use all those fish. There were just two of us, with no real place to store or keep them. They just shrugged and told us to tip them overboard. That's what they would have done with them anyway, they said. They told us that this was just a small fraction of one day's bycatch, that they were only interested in tuna, and to them everything else was rubbish. It was all killed, all dumped. They just trawled that reef day and night and stripped it of every living thing. McFadden felt sick to his heart. That was one fishing boat among countless more working unseen beyond the horizon, many of them doing exactly the same thing. No wonder the sea was dead. No wonder his baited lines caught nothing. There was nothing to catch. If that sounds depressing, it only got worse. If you want to find out how bad it did get after that, um, go online on theherald.com.au and find the story The Ocean is Broken by Greg Ray. One more in a story on gz.com by Todd Woody, the solar revolution is being fought by the middle class. American utility executives worry that the solar boom will cost them revenue as homeowners generate their own electricity. Some have depicted solar enthusiasts as green elites who will saddle their less wealthy neighbors with higher energy costs as rates are raised to maintain the power grid. But that's a myth, according to a study released today that finds the vast majority of homeowners who install solar panels, belong to the middle class. The report from the Center for American Progress analyzed the data in three states with the most solar systems, Arizona, California, and New Jersey. Researchers then correlated the location of the solar panels with income information from the U.S. Census Bureau. In Arizona, for instance, nearly 80% of solar systems were installed by homeowners who live in neighborhoods with medium annual incomes between 40000 and 90000 Those earning more than 90000 accounted for just 13% of photovoltaic systems. In California, the biggest solar state, the middle class installed 67% of rooftop solar, while the wealthy bought or leased nearly 30%. The story was similar in New Jersey, where the middle class homeowners accounted for 63% of solar installations.
This is the worst radio ever. So one game I've been, or I, I enjoyed briefly, was um, the new new portion of the game um, called 400 Days for the Walking Dead on iOS. So I played this on my iPad. The game 400 Days, or Walking Dead 400 Days, has some really nice new characters and new situations. That it puts you through. But my only real complaint about it. It is too short. It is enough time to get you back into the story. Um, the Walking Dead came out on iOS quite a while back. And I had played through all the episodes. I think there were five original episodes. It was very good and very compelling. It really tied you into the characters. This new portion or new episode. 400 Days was just enough time to introduce you to some new characters, but then left you hanging. It, it, you made decisions along the way um, for these characters, which played into how things turned out in the end, but then the end came very abruptly. So my complaint is too short. Enough time to get me back into the story, with some new characters that I could get introduced to, but then it just ends too quickly. And another thing. According to Amnesty International, U.S. drone strikes could be classed as war crimes. U.S. officials responsible for the secret CIA drone campaign against suspected terrorists in Pakistan may have committed war crimes and should stand trial, a report by a leading human rights group warns. Amnesty International has highlighted the case of a grandmother who was killed while she was picking vegetables and other incidents which could have broken international laws designed to protect civilians. The report is issued in conjunction with an investigation by Human Rights Watch detailing missile attacks in Yemen, which the group believes could contravene the laws of armed conflict, international human rights law, and Barack Obama's own guideline on drones. So this is a pretty good story from TheGuardian.com called, on October 21st, called U.S. Drone Strikes Could Be Classed as War Crimes, Amnesty International says. So it goes into some detail about the findings and why they believe that the drone strikes in question should be classified as war crimes. And in further reports on drone strikes, um, from investigations.nbcnews.com by Bill Dedman, D-E-D-M-A-N, U.S. has killed far more civilians with drones than it admits, says the U.N. A new report from a special U.N. investigator says drone strikes have killed far more civilians than U.S. officials have publicly acknowledged, at least 400 in Pakistan and as many as 58 in Yemen, and chides the U.S. for failing to aid the investigation by disclosing its own figures. U.N. Special Rapporteur Ben Emerson who issued the interim report, said the U.S. had created, quote, an almost insurmountable obstacle to transparency. 
quote, the special rapporteur does not accept that considerations of national security justify withholding statistical and basic methodological data of this kind, wrote Emerson in the report, which is due to be presented to the UN next Friday. U.S. intelligence officials have consistently downplayed the number of civilian deaths from drone strikes. In a June 2011 speech, White House counterterrorism advisor John Brennan, who is now CIA director, said that, quote, for nearly the past year, there hasn't been a single collateral death because of the exceptional proficiency and precision of U.S. counterterror strikes. Later, the CIA acknowledged some civilian casualties, but told Congress they were Quote, they were in the, quote, single digits, according to a February 2013 statement by Senate Intelligence Committee Chair Senator Dianne Feinstein. According to Emerson, the Pakistani government provided him with new casualty numbers for strikes in the country's federally administered tribal areas, FATA, where the U.S. government has targeted al-Qaeda operatives and their associates since 2004. While acknowledging the difficulty in compiling precise figures in a region largely beyond government control, he states that Pakistani officials confirmed at, quote, at least 400 civilians had been killed as a result of remotely piloted aircraft strikes, and a further 200 individuals killed were regarded as probably non-combatants. He added that Pakistani officials said those figures were likely to be an underestimate due to underreporting and obstacles to effective investigation. So, no surprise that with our secret drone strike program, we are being absolutely secret about the real impacts of that. The drone strikes are part of part of our war, but aren't really in a, a war zone. Um, not where at least we're actively engaged on the ground in war. Um, in addition to killing civilians, as we heard in the previous story, even killing the intended targets who are um, perhaps actively planning against our interests and in some cases carrying out those those plans against our interests, we are terrorizing the population and creating more resentment and hatred of us, which is not effective in countering terrorists. We live in a very different time now. What the hell is wrong with us? Indeed. Wall Street's Nightmare. This story is by Ben White from politico.com. There are three words that strike terror in the hearts of Wall Street bankers and corporate executives across the land. President Elizabeth Warren. Anxiety over Warren grew Monday after a magazine report suggested the bank-bashing Democratic senator from Massachusetts could mount a presidential bid in 2016 and not necessarily defer to Hillary Clinton, who is viewed as far more business-friendly for the party's nomination. Now, I've talked about Elizabeth Warren in the past from my former 
home state of Massachusetts. I don't know all of her stands on all of her her policies, but I do like the way she talks about the banks and the need to reform how they are managed and how they are overseen by government entities. <clears throat> the story continues. The fear is not only that Warren, who channels an increasingly popular strain of Occupy Wall Street-style anti-corporatism, might win. That is viewed by many political analysts as a slim possibility. The fear is that a Warren candidacy, or even the threat of one, would push Clinton to the left in the primaries and revive arguments about breaking up the nation's largest banks, raising taxes, taxes on the wealthy, and otherwise stoke populist anger that is likely to also play a big role in the Republican primaries. Quote, the nightmare scenario for banks is to hear these arguments from a candidate on the far left and on the far right, said Jarrett Seiberg, a financial services industry analyst at Guggenheim Partners. Quote, suddenly you have Elizabeth Warren screaming about too big to fail on one side and Rand Paul screaming about it on the other side, and then candidates in the middle are forced to weigh in. From my perspective, anything that is giving bankers nightmares sounds like the right track to me. Mainstream Democrats, however, tend to be disappointing. Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, etc. They run from and get support from the left, but for the most part, they don't propose, support, or deliver policy that is drastically different than Republicans. Very well said that we have complete and utter freedom of speech uh, for the most part. For the most part. This story is from Consumers.com by Meg Marco. We are in the era of nightmare bacteria and nobody seems to care. On March 5, 2013, the Centers for Disease Control issued a press release titled Lethal Drug-Resistant Bacteria Spreading in U.S. Healthcare Facilities. The warning that followed was dire. Drug-resistant organism called Carpipenem resistant Enterobacteriaceae, or CRE, were not only spreading more rapidly through U.S. hospitals, they are becoming more resistant to so-called last-resort antibiotics. CRE are nightmare bacteria, said CDC Director Tom Frieden. How nightmarish? According to data from the CDC, one in two patients who contract a bloodstream CRE infection will die. That is an ominous statistic, but it might not even be the scariest fact about CRE. CRE bacteria are unusual in that they can transfer antibiotic resistance to other bacteria. This means that it's possible for a CRE organism to spread its resistance to bacteria like E. coli, the most common cause of urinary tract infections in otherwise healthy people. Treatment for this type of infection is usually straightforward, but once the bacteria become drug resistant, the treatment options are effectively gone. According to information from the CDC, 
A few CRE bacteria are introduced into the system of a patient at a hospital or in the community through a cut or scrape or other vector. The infected patient shows signs of infection and is treated with standard antibiotics. At this point, normal bacteria are killed by the antibiotics while the CRE flourish. Then the CRE can spread their resistant characteristics to other bacteria present in the patient's body. Those bacteria, now essentially untreatable, can then spread to other patients or members of the community, and thus the cycle continues. Bacterial resistance is largely inevitable, a representative from the CDC tells Frontline in a recent program, but it's also something that we have certainly helped along the way. We have fueled this fire of bacterial resistance. These drugs are miracle drugs, but we haven't taken good care of them. In overusing these antibiotics, we have set ourselves up for the scenario that we find ourselves in now, where we are running out of antibiotics. I'm not finding any redeeming value in it. So that will wrap it up for episode number 12 of Unrelated Things. Thank you very much for listening. I appreciate it. And if you want to reach out to me, you can reach out to me at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. Or you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter. Or check out the website at unrelatedthings.net. Unrelated thing.